The Cappuccino Podcast brought to you in association with Tactical Solutions. For all your tactical solutions, check them out at www.tactical.co.nz. It's that time again, so grab yourself a cup of joe and get ready for the Cappuccino with Constable Brian. So, my guest today, Dr. Alia Bojalova, how many times a day do people mispronounce your name? Constantly, and yep. that makes it so much more special. Yeah, it does, know? I bet. Yep, okay, so came to New Zealand at the age of 17 from Sofia in Bulgaria, arrived in Christchurch, was the lead psych uh, and also an officer for the SAS for six years, doctor from Waikato University, um, who studied law before she found her space in psychology. Uh, she has a master's in organisational psychology and she worked for the New Zealand Defence Force for a number of years before she became a, you've got your own consultancy firm now, haven't you? That's right. There you go. Yeah. All right. Okay. So speed round. Um, you probably haven't listened to the podcast and that's okay. I have. I have. Well, there you go. So now you know why I dedicate this to speed because it's Keanu Reeves. He's the coolest guy on earth got and it. it's the best cop movie of all time. So the weirdest thing about New Zealand when you arrived to you was what space yep. endless space okay all right your favorite book of all time is what victor frankel man search for meaning of course it is yep <laughs> there was me expecting something like the white lion of the witch in the wardrobe but no. no yeah okay what's the best rumor you've heard about yourself because i'm imagining and this was just my mind floating off and you and i've had sort of a bit of time to get to know one another that there's been some people in the defense force have gone She's like, it's Spitznares or something like that. And they brought her in specially or something. They probably have. Well, they probably go. have. I haven't. You know, I'm yeah. not paying attention to those things. Yeah. But, white yeah. noise. White noise. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> when I say resilience, what's the first event or person that you think of? I think of a person that I work with when I think of resilience. Uh, that's the first thought that I have because it comes with humility. The first incident is thinking about my dad's reaction when I flew with him from one city in Bulgaria to another and vomited inside of his shirt before a military parade that he was heading to. Mm. Lucky man. <laughs> uh, right, okay then. Mental note, don't sit too close. Uh, do you collect anything? Hmm. Mm. Animals. Okay, there you the go. Okay, yeah. right. In the next life, if you believe in reincarnation, we're going to say that you do for this bit, mm -hmm. you come back as what? A bird. Okay, there you go. The resilience sort of soundtrack song for Dr. Alia Bojalova is what? The Prodigy. Minefields. <laughs> Minefield. yeah. And I do have to say thank you very much for reintroducing me back into that album. I used to be into it something ridiculous. Uh -huh. And then when I read Minefields, I'm like, that is such a great song. I'm going to go back. Yep, boom. There you go. Okay. So resilience has always fascinated you, hasn't it? Absolutely. Right. Why do you think that is? Why? Because it's essential. Yeah. You don't have it, you don't move forward. You don't move forward, you die. Yeah, I guess. Yep. Okay. So many people will say that resilience has become a bit of a buzzword, like mindfulness, right? And we've had well, probably dozens of guests and every single one I've said, what's mindfulness mean? And they're doctors and um, master's students and I'm getting different answers everywhere, right? So the Oxford Dictionary defines resilience as the capacity to withstand or recover quickly from difficulties or toughness. But I'm going to ask you for the Bojilova 
sort of definition. What is it? Mm-hmm. I've got an issue with that definition. I know Sorry, you would Oxford have. Dictionary. Yeah, yeah. It bothers me. Yeah. It bothers me because it's, it's. I think the word is metallurgy. It's, it's the way in which you describe a piece of metal to mm-hmm. absorb and to recover quickly. But humans actually need a whole heap more than just absorbing and recovering. Mm-hmm. I keep saying it, but you know, bouncing back to what once was is seldom good enough. You need to bounce forward, you need to be able to absorb the learnings that your situation has given you and grow bigger, faster, better than you were the minute before. Mm-hmm. And that's much harder. And you and I know um, listening to other interviews and with some of the stuff I've read, you have a real issue with resilience just being called bouncing back, don't that's you? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. What do you think the biggest misconception about resilience is? That it's something that some people have and others don't. And it's something that you can, I guess, it is something that you can grow that is highly developable. The minute we think of resilience as being innate in some people and not in others, we stuff ourselves up. All right. Okay. Now, just to prove to you that I can read, some of the studies I briefly looked at from Columbia, Harvard, and Yale mm-hmm. stated that resilient individuals often share the following characteristics. They have positive or a realistic outlook on life. They have a strong moral compass. They have a belief in something greater than themselves, or as you would say, and the Resilience Toolkit, and we didn't mention that author of the Resilience Toolkit, that's why we're here. Goodness me, what type of that? Uh, concern for others. They accept what they can't change and they focus their energy on what they can change. They have a mission or a purpose or a meaning and they have a social support system and they support others. Generally speaking, do you think that's right or is there anything that you would add or delete from that list? I love this list. And you know, the minute you started reading it and quoting all these places you found this research in, my heart sank because I was thinking, Jeebus, what if I've starved this out? No, no, you haven't. <laughs> you're good, you're good. Yep. But you know, I've studied this thing for the longest of time, I obviously did my doctorate in it, but when I was piecing together this book, it was entirely because of all of the observations that I have had from people that I've worked along with and mm-hmm. the journey that the whole curiosity about resilience took us on. So absolutely I love that. What's missing of course is calling out my favorite bit which is curiosity. Yeah. Right? Yeah, definitely. Yep. And uh, also calling out the end outcome which is drive. Yeah. But I think the rest of it is in there. So yeah. optimistic and, outlook. And is, I'm a little bit like mm-hmm. you and we'll talk about that about your pivot as you would say. Um mm-hmm. with curiosity because I was reading the residency toolkit and I'm sitting there she, she keeps talking about curiosity and you know curiosity killed the cat. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm. And then, as I got further in, I'm like, right now I'm with you. Mm. Um, what do you think it is though that gives us resilience? Because, like you said, um, there is this myth of, you know, my dad was a, a World War Two veteran, so and I can do this, this, and this. I've got resilience. So I come from good stock. Mm-hmm. But like you say, it can be trained. You believe it can be trained into people. Absolutely, can be. Yeah. Every one of us has it. Yeah. So choice is what gives it. Yeah, exactly. Do you yeah. think? And I mean, I know that there's some upbringing. Um, factors in there and your social context is, and everything else but if I said to you do you think you could take somebody and make them super resilient you wouldn't have any issues with that you'd be like yeah I can, we can do this I think everyone is super resilient in their own ways but there's a lot of white noise that distracts oh yes yeah yep. okay now when you wrote the resilience toolkit was it difficult to relate your military experience I'm not going to say the layman's terms but to civilian terms so that people can relate to it um you and I know a few people that, um, shall we say, operate in the same circles. Mm. A lot of those people, police officers, uh, spec operators, uh, people from special military units, they will just do what they do because that's what they know how to do. And when you sit down with them, or somebody like yourself sits down with them and says, why did you do that? They go, 
because that's what I do. Uh-huh. Um, they can't elaborate any more on it. So when you wrote the resiliency toolkit, was it difficult to go academic side, military side, yeah. let me throw this out for sort of um, Joe Punter on the street? Yeah. Was that hard? The hardest challenge. Yeah. But I'll take you a step back. When I was um, eight months pregnant with my son, actually, I went back to the unit to interview some of these individuals you talk about. Mm-hmm. And you know that insanely frustrating thing where you think, you're going to have to give me the script for how and why you did that. Yeah. And the response is usually, I just did. Yeah. I just knew. Of course it is. Yeah. But, but we've got to look behind that as well, right? Because all of that, all of that stuff is practiced. It's rehearsed. It's in, in the own minds. It's a drill that has developed after years and years of choosing the right thing to mm-hmm. choose. And then it becomes innate. Mm-hmm. So. You can't just stop at that in no. that barrier, right? You walk several steps behind that, knock on that door, and then magic unfolds. Yeah, you know, definitely right. So mm. you mentioned in the book, awareness, belonging, curiosity, and drive has been key to becoming resilient. Right? How important is the balance between all four? Because look, let's be honest, um, I've known some really aware individuals, but their drive has been that of sort of the garden slug on the driveway. It's like, uh-huh. yeah. Okay, cool. So how important is it to have a good all-round balance or do you think when you look at those different aspects you could actually be not very good at one but great at all three? You know, my nana used to say in order for you to be able to sit on a chair you need all four legs, right? Yeah. And it was really, that echoed with me as I was writing the book throughout and as I was actually doing the research for it more, more importantly, right? You, even if you have three legs on a chair the balance is a little weaker. So all of these things matter. They might matter differently at different mm-hmm. times, but they're all important. I need to introduce you to Judge Andrew Beecroft, the ex-Children's Commissioner. He has an entire presentation on that, on a safe and rewarding childhood on the full legs of a chair. Really? There you go. Yeah, there you go. Amazing. So when COVID struck and the world went toilet roll crazy, did you, like a lot of us, sit there? I mean, you're a resiliency expert. Uh, I've got a few survival skills. I'm not going to say I'm anything amazing, but I sat there and... I actually rang people I knew that were Navy SEALs and went, mm, okay, um, <laughs> now I can think of the obvious use for toilet rolls uh-huh. and I can think of uh, maybe as a fire starter or if we get really stuck, maybe wetting the paper and blocking something, but that's about it. Were you kind of staggered that that was what our first response was as sort of humanity? I to... think we were following each other, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what yeah. yeah, yeah, crazy. Remarkable. Yeah, well, yeah. So now... Chris Ryan gave the world possibly one of the greatest examples of resilience when an SAS patrol, Bravo 20, was compromised and he walked mm. 300 kilometres from an op point between Baghdad and northwestern Iraq mm. to the Syrian border. He drank water with nuclear waste in it, he lost 16 kgs, he suffered severe muscle atrophy, mm. and in reflection, he states the difference between death and survival was his survival skills, his instincts, and his intuition. Would you agree mm. or disagree with that? It's his experience. Yeah. If that's what got him there, yeah. I'm sure he did. There you go. Right. But then why did he choose to pursue that? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing, you know. Mm. And it's like he stated when he was advised by a senior officer when he spoke to the and no disrespect, the mm. head shed, yeah. uh, to say that he was absolutely fine. And at the interview and I've heard him talk about this, he actually said to the psychologist, How long is this gonna take? That's because right. I'm gonna go out for an afternoon run. Um, but at the same time he says, At the time I was absolutely and to use his a quite from him absolutely barking what barking mad um, why do you think there's an element of distrust or suspicion between the troops and the psychologists and the psychiatrists um, with units and service people in general I mean we even have this in the police as well you know mm-hmm. don't talk to the head kids yeah. you know whew, things will happen um, 
what do you think there is that level of distrust? I, as I think it's definitely getting a lot, lot better than it used to be. But is it that stigma of you have the power to go, he's not fit for active duty or she's not fit for active duty anymore? Can you imagine that? And that's the blunt reality of it, right? Yeah. Like you have men and women who have spent years, decades, dreaming about this one moment, this one experience of their lives. And then there is this random person who is sitting there with some unknown tools in the tool shed. Mm -hmm pretending that they can better understand them than the person themselves. Mm -hmm. So so of course you'll have that element of mistrust. Mm. Trust needs to be earned and it needs to be earned amongst humans as opposed to institutions or roles. So innately I think it is that fear that their own decisions are going to be taken away from them. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to look a little bit beyond that as well, right? Um, it must be awful and I'm guessing that without putting you on the spot you've done it. But seeing somebody on selection, for instance, getting slower mm. and slower mm. and slower, but not giving up. They're, as we would say, resilient, um, but they're just not up to the unit's specifications, no matter yeah. what unit that is. Is it, Is there a little bit of a pang when you actually have to go, you know what, Smith? You're it's cut. agonizing. Yeah, I bet. It's agonizing. Yeah. So, mm. Okay. If you listen to many in society, they'll often say, for instance, young people, you know, they're soft. They've got no backbone. Um, you know, they're not like our generation used to be. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any evidence of that? I mean, both in your consultancy and in your time in the military, do you think there is any softening of sort of resilience at the moment or not? Resilience in the way we knew it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because those things come from particular kinds of exposures. And if those exposures aren't part of our repertoire for life, you can't develop it. Mm -hmm. But I choose to believe, and I have the evidence to show that we are becoming stronger and more resilient differently. So it's a mutual challenge. It's not just the oldies versus the youngies. No, yeah. Everyone has to now continuously adapt. So what are the lessons learned we can gain from all that we have experienced? How do we translate that to the future generation? Mm -hmm. And how do we also, the oldies, adapt our way of thinking and being so that we can better understand the kind of resilience that is needed for the future? Because I don't know if slogging and dragging you know yourself up the hill is necessarily going to be the thing for the future mm. right so the script for life changes mm -hmm. resilience and how you access it might change around that mm -hmm. the short of it is yeah we do see things change but we need to change with them too yeah now we often see in television programs SAS, who dares wins tracked um the selection that it isn't until people break through the sort of facade of toughness that they really pivot, so to speak, uh -huh. right? To become resilient. Um, as one ECS member you quote in the Residency Toolkit says, my pivot to greater resilience was to notice the differences between awareness, alertness, and assumption. Uh -huh. So why, as humans, um, and particularly those in, how would I put this? Units, service, why do we naturally default to toughness? Is it something that we've been taught is it just a natural human instinct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Firstly, I love that quote. So the yeah. difference between alertness, awareness, and what is the third Assumption. component? Assumption. That's, That's right, yeah. right? Yeah. So I love that part of the book and I love this person's story. But I do think that we default to toughness because that's a normal human response it's a stress response right mm -hmm. you brace for impact everything you've got has to become that you know mm -hmm. shell of, of of protection around you 
The challenge, though, is that in order for us to absorb more and to learn and to really pay attention to the changing context in which we are in, we have to be a whole heap more aware. Mm -hmm. We have to be a whole heap more open mm -hmm. and capable of seeing ourselves being challenged, being pushed by our environment, allowing that tango dance to happen like Aikido, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you just, you're rigid. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's like, and it's like I say to a lot of the young cops as well, I'm like, I get, you know, it's an action movie and everything else, but, but if you watch every action moment, there's a action movie, there's a moment of awareness. Mm -hmm. Die Hard, Rambo, whatever you want. There's a moment where the hero can't do it. He fails, he uh -huh. falls, she falls over, something else. And then all of a sudden it's a moment of awareness and I'll do this. And it's like, oh, the same is true in life, I guess. Um, yeah. So awareness is a huge factor in resiliency. Is that something that the modern soldier or warrior has over troops of yesteryear, so to speak? Or did those people actually possess it, but they weren't able to, they weren't aware of the label awareness, so to speak. I mean, many wouldn't have meditated or done ice baths mm -hmm. or that type of stuff. Um, but when you look at some of those World War II veterans, for instance, they were sitting there every night and doing poetry mm -hmm. and writing in their diaries. I mean, that's reflection, isn't it? It's Absolutely. just a different way. So do you think it's it's changed or do you think it's always been there? It's just the factors are changing and that sort of awareness and reflection and we don't sort of maybe call it what they used to call it and it's just going through a generational cycle. I think we've found a label for it that most of us can relate to now. But I think that the components to the mix are much the same. Mm -hmm. No matter what stage and phase of human history you travel in, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have these things in order for you to be resilient as we as we define it. So yeah, it's just a label. Mm -hmm. But labels can be handy because if we can't make sense of stuff and if we don't have those exposures to teach us experientially what this needs to look like, we have to hook ourselves onto something to start constructing it yeah. it's the map that you need in order to start building it yeah exactly and it gives you something to hook into as well mm -hmm. i guess there are varying degrees of resilience and i'm guessing for instance a solo parent with three children mm -hmm. who's doing study and working at the same time is certainly as resilient as most others right what is it though that se separates some people in your opinion when it comes to resilience. I mean, you and I both know, and it's just different circumstances. If I took a unit member, for instance, and said, you've mm. got to look after these four kids, you've never had experience with the kids, you've <laughs> got to luck. cook them dinner. Yeah, good luck like, to the kids. It's gonna be like a military <laughs> operation, but mm. resilience has varying degrees. So what is it that you think separates those people from the others when it comes to resiliency? If I was to pick one thing, I'm going to have to pick curiosity. And and I and I, so because I mean there's two two stories, right? If you're thinking about a single parent who is doing all of these different things, extraordinary to begin with. But the ones I imagine that are resilient are the ones that are capable of knowing what stage of their day is now finished and mm -hmm. how they need to focus on the next one and the next one and the next one, right? So are they able to be present? Are they able to be focused at the time when their attention is required for either child or study or work? Right, and so all of that stuff requires your ability to be present in your moment, connect with what's in front of you as opposed to what had happened 20 minutes ago mm -hmm. or what's ahead of you, mm -hmm. and work with what you've got. So it's the difference between surviving and merely making it, barely making it yeah. and actually thriving. So I'd say the point of difference would be curiosity. Mm -hmm. Are they capable of giving themselves a chance to look past the present moment and think, I can dream up bigger, I can do more with what I've got, mm -hmm. and be present in the moment as well. Mm. And like you've just said, mothers are particularly good at, that happened half an hour ago, it's, uh -huh. that's like last week to me, boom, yeah. let's move on. How long does it take you normally to figure out how resilient somebody is, Dr. Alia, in life, on selection, <laughs> or on first meeting them? So when you meet an individual, like, 
police officers are always doing it. They'll uh-huh. meet somebody and go, that person would make a great police officer. Mm. They've good communication skills. They can talk to people. They have a sense of connectedness there. How long does it take you normally when you meet somebody to go, resilient or not resilient? I would, I could pretend that I know the answer to this, yeah. right? Yeah, you could, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Then, but then the, the the blunt reality is that I'll always be mega surprised by what people actually have to give, right? Yeah. So sometimes you can see someone who comes across as being a little bit neurotic, slightly scattered, mm-hmm. reactive to too many things, but you see them in the acute and they brace themselves differently, mm-hmm. right? Everyone has their own thing going on, their own little script. Yeah. So the level of agility cognitive agility how quick can you adapt your thinking style to fit your current context Mm -hmm. can you adjust yourself to engage with different people differently in the way that your situation requires if i can see that i can predict relatively quickly how much resilience we are talking about and also can they maintain that level of bounceability that level of joyfulness no matter what's going on first sign human humility right do Mm. they have it if they've got it they're good to go yeah so when you were doing selection for the unit for instance could you stand there and go maybe that person that person and that person or was it no we'll have to wait and see and see the unexpected and then how they pivot if you did that if you tried to predict someone's resilience in an instant at a look what you actually are doing is assessing the grit assessing how how hardy they might appear to be at the beginning yeah but the shock and surprise of actually seeing what happens 5k down the road yeah a couple of questions later Yep. That's the stuff. That, that's worthy of watching. Yeah, and know? a pulled hamstring is a pulled hamstring no matter who you are. That's right. That's exactly. Okay. So, knowing that you work with high-functioning performing athletes, mm-hmm. why do so many of us look at sports stars and athletes as resilient individuals? Because, look, let's be honest, if I play the devil's advocate here for a little bit, lots of athletes have fairly pampered lives. Mm-hmm. They have a crew of people running around them. Um, you'll see, for instance, NBA stars coming off the court well, they've got cramp and they've got five people carrying them. I'm guessing that doesn't happen on selection, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, are they good resiliency role models or are there better role models for us to look at and learn from with regard to resiliency, in your opinion? Do you know, I have to agree with you when it comes to, to professional sport, largely overseas rather than New Zealand, right? New Zealand, we, the truth is we still play the small game and overachieve against mm-hmm. all criteria, yeah. as you know. And my mind instantly goes to Olympics, Paralympics, New Zealand, and so many athletes that are below that level that are effectively only competing because they want to mm-hmm. and then have to self-fund. So they certainly don't have anyone chasing them no. when they have a pulled hamstring. But when we're talking about the big, big dogs in the game and globally, by all means, I don't know whether this is necessarily the best representation of resilience. Yeah. The little mum down the road in Papakura, yeah. she probably has far richer story to tell and a whole heap more to teach. But the truth is, any human who is worth pursuing their own goal and their own vision, who is able to see themselves as being able to develop further, is worthy of learning from. So if you're talking about a top performer, an athlete, that means that they know the flavor of strain. They understand what it means to lean in past the point of flexibility and, and comfort. Mm-hmm. And to understand that, that takes a bit of grit. Yeah, you're right. But um, I think different heroes are needed. That's it. Um, like I always say to people, don't choose one. You could have half a dozen and take the best aspects of, all, of them all. Um, there's been a plethora of unit special operators uh, personnel write books on a raft of a number of topics um, many of which circle back to resiliency and I'm guessing you've read a few um, and I'll excuse you if you haven't but when you read them what are your thoughts on them because a lot of them tend to be I can do this I've done this I've done that and I actually lent a copy of a I won't mention the author's name um, a, a book of a man who did an amazing sort of adventure odyssey 
and I lent it to somebody and they came back to me and said well that's great but if you can't even get out of bed in the morning um, doing what that person's just done is never ever going to happen and I was like mm, yeah okay cool um, so when you read those books or you see those books do you take them with a grain of salt or do you sit there and go oh, okay we'll learn the lesson but mm. I just yeah I mean do you know the truth is is that I haven't read too many of those books. I have read Victor Frankl's book several times. Yeah, yeah, that to me is yeah, like yeah. epic resilience. Yeah. You know that he wrote two, Men's Search for Meaning and Men's Search for Ultimate Meaning. Yeah. The same the same effectively content. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like different title. Second edition. Um, yeah. But I do see the thing is what I want to know is to what extent is this translatable? Can I can Bob down the road, can we both pick it up and learn from this experience? I think every story, every human narrative is worthy of utmost respect mm-hmm. and has something for us to learn from. But it needs to be relatable in some way. We need to be able to pick up that essence. And if this person who is sharing the story is capable of extracting from that experience what it is that took them past that threshold, man, that's gold. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. more we share those stories, the better off we are. But we need to have that level of articulation, mm-hmm. right? So that anyone can hook into it and go, this is accessible. Even if I can't get myself out of bed, this is the choice I make for my own mountain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, that's the stuff. Because you can't translate that. If you can... If we can make that work, if we can translate someone's heroic pursuit, like crossing the ocean several times, right? Just to see how well you can lead yourself through challenges. Yeah. If you can translate that to having a depressive episode and you are locked in bed, unable to see the purpose of your day starting, then how can you how can you make that yours, mm. right? How can you lead yourself out of bed yeah. today? Yeah. So I think there's gold in all of this. So your journey into the NZDF was a bit of a different story. You go yeah. to support a friend, <laughs> <laughs> at officer selection and end up being selected yourself yep. they miss out yep. um, and uh, in your own words you're only meant to be there for a year but you lasted a little bit longer yep. than that um, what was your drive when you were actually in the NZDF what was what because was, I mean that's like you've just finished your masters yep. you go along to support a friend and I'm guessing I mean you can't just turn up at these things and go yeah I'm here to support them but I'll just on the on the sly yeah. and it happens they don't get selected you do get selected and I mean no disrespect but you've just finished your degree you've just finished your masters and lots of people would look at that and go and you're going into the services Mm -hmm. why don't you go into like private consultation because you'll make much more money and everything else so what was your drive to go into the defense force well I'm going to say what it was and I'm not going to pretend that it's in my mind that there's nothing naive about it I genuinely felt like I had responsibility to contribute back to New Zealand mm-hmm. in some way. I wanted to serve. That sense of service yep. is incredibly important to me. Right? If you, if you can't see yourself being able to give back for what you have been given, mm-hmm. there's something wrong with the picture. Yeah. And, and and to be fair, I mean, added the adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Who that? If you've been sitting on your butt long enough doing master's degree, you'd yep. want to have some adventure, right, in your life. So yep. I did have a consultancy job that was offered. It was far more reasonable and sensitive, for, you know, sensible for me to pick. But all these other components of giving back, being prepared to be challenged so that you can do better. Mm-hmm. And also the adventure components. Yeah, of course. Yep. Couldn't have possibly been better. So you get chosen to be the lead psych officer for the SAS. Um, and I've heard you mention before, it's not something you apply for. You get shoulder tap for, as most of the good positions are, right? What was that moment like? And did you fully comprehend the undertaking that you were about to take? Because... I mean, most people, if I say anything to do with the SAS, it's like mm-hmm. men in grey and, you know, 
whispering voices and that type of stuff. And there that you are as sort of, I mean, how long you'd been in the NZ there before they shoulder tapped you? Less than a year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we want you to go and study these people in this unit and tell us why they do what they do. I mean, mm. was that as, I mean, as a master's student, that must have just, you must have tapped like the gold ore academically, but personally and sort of for yourself, were you like inside going, oh my, what am I doing? I don't, I don't think I ever had a minute to high five myself yeah. because you know, you, the minute you get it, yep. you also realize that you will only be there as long as you're good. Mm -hmm. And if you somehow underperform or you are a little less than the unrelenting sort of excellence, then you know, yeah, see bye bye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you don't have, you don't have an opportunity no. to high five yourself <laughs> yeah, ever, yeah, I don't yeah, think. No, yeah, know? no, not wrong. Yeah. So, so you become a selection specialist, you do training deployments, supports for missions uh, to places such as Afghanistan. Now you've seen, and I'm going to use the term, we both know it, the other side of the curtain, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think it is that drives the public fascination with units such as the SAS? Do you think it's the, the working in the shadows, the mystique, their incredible capacity to perform under grueling circumstances and very often with next to no equipment mm -hmm. uh, or something has happened, resiliency or all of the above. If I said to you, put your finger on it, what is it that makes people just go when you mention it? All of these things. Yeah. All of these things. I think every one of us has to have that sense of awe and admiration about human beings who choose to throw themselves in a complete unknown and in a state of discomfort for a purpose greater than themselves. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that wouldn't be just for the unit that will be for wider people that are in service community including yourself mm -hmm. right so i think the, the the added layer of mystique and secrecy surrounding the unit is what makes it extra mm. extra fascinating mm. you know and you have that sense of belonging and it's really interesting because i've spoken to two soldiers who both stood on landmines and had their legs blown off mm. um one of them was a royal marine and lost three of his limbs and in both instances it their first reaction wasn't oh shit I'm having a bad day it was bugger I've let my team down mm -hmm. and now my mates are coming towards me just stay there just let me die here so yeah I don't yeah, yeah but why when many service people leave their service they often have huge issues what they've seen what they've done uh, what they've heard how do service people make themselves more resilient for where their retirement when they leave service in your opinion I'm, I'm guessing when you left to go and join Civvy Street that was, I'm not going to say a difficult transition, but there are lots of people that you and I both know, that they lose their identity. Um, and with that losing their identity, they lose their sense of belonging and maybe a yeah. little bit of the resilience. So yeah. how do we bulletproof ourselves? I'm not, I'm not going to say that you can, but how do you yeah. make it better for when you do leave your unit, your uniform, your identity? I think we have to take this really, really seriously because at the end of the day, you do lose your identity. Everything, particularly when you're talking about roles of service, they're all that you're about, right? Mm -hmm. The whole sense of being is about this environment and in this context. Your rule for life mm -hmm. are given by this context. You you kind of assess whether you're having a good day or a bad day based, like you said, yeah. on the condition of your mates. Yeah. So your entire universe is usually in it. Usually your whole social circle is in it. So if it wasn't challenging, I'd be concerned mm. because you're letting go of an enormous component of your of your identity as an adult mm -hmm. in, in most cases. I think the one thing that we don't do well, and I, I include myself in this in this equation, is translating the lessons learned from your military service into wider contribution, capacity for wider mm -hmm. contribution in the civilian space. I think what we tend to do often is 
pick up a couple of translatable skill sets that are very much kind of nuts and bolts mm -hmm. and we try and sell ourselves to the world outside of service yeah. but it's a whole heap bigger than that mm. so i think what takes for us i hope none of us become fully bulletproof because when it comes to human nature and resilience that's again yeah. grit as opposed to Correct. as opposed yeah. to the good stuff but at least stronger in a stride out of that service environment and that is pause long enough to be able to better understand what it is that you have gained psychologically emotionally that wider richness of context that comes together with anyone in service mm. that can help contribute the wider community and i think there's a big part that we forget as well service no matter your context but doubly so when it comes to some of these unique environments such as the SAS, is about contributing to the betterment of others mm. And oftentimes you can't feel that buzz if you're just going from service space to an office desk job. It just doesn't. No, it doesn't no. have the same appeal. No. Yep. So, so how will you connect wider with that capacity for contribution? Because that's your core driver. Mm. We can't just severe it and go. Oh, from here on, I'm just gonna, you know, pay my bills and that's that. Yeah. You know, nine to five. Yep. No, it's yep. not how it works. Um, I remember reading a story once of an SAS operator in the UK who actually went down to a job center. He said, to be fair, he said, my CV wasn't particularly good. It was sort of SAS 15 years. Um, and the job that the job centre offered him was a, as a road patrol um, warden for children walking across a crossing uh -huh. outside schools. And he was like, have I gone from that? Have I gone from doing like these amazing military missions and jumping out of helicopters and that type of stuff mm. to operating a lollipop? So I guess, yeah, like you say, it's just that sense of identity. Now, talking to many who have walked in the shadows, and I know that you have, doing book signings and public appearances and photos, etc., are terrifying events, right? In the space of a year, you've been on TV, written a book, mm. you've been in the Woman's Weekly, yep. you've been front page <laughs> of the Sunday News, uh, yep. we're both raising your profile. Mm. What's been like, what has that been like for you personally? Because you've lived in, well, you've lived in the shadows for so long. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, look, it's Dr. Alia. Yep. Mm. So how was that for you personally? Because that's got to be a bit of a sort of, that's, well, I'm not going to say it's pivot, but it's certainly right outside your comfort zone, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, totally. And, and you know, like on a daily, I have to remind myself, why am I doing this? And, and it's, I think the fact that there's a face and a name to this particular toolkit is by the by, because really what matters most to me is all the lessons that I've gathered over time, not for myself, mm -hmm to aid others with them and uh, this the core motivation firstly behind my my PhD research and then the book was to capture some of these stories that I was hearing and I knew no one else would mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. because that's your job your mm -hmm. job is to help absorb to be a sounding board to understand how these people process the acuity of life and for me to be sitting here selfishly in my little country home holding them in an Excel spreadsheet seemed really severe yeah. do you know what yeah, I mean yeah, yeah, the, I do. Most, yeah, yeah. the most ridiculous yep. like ego tripping thing so I do feel intensely uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but at the same time, what matters most is how can we all grow from the lessons that we've all learned and how can we continue to spread those morals when we need them, mm -hmm. not when it's convenient to the person who holds the lessons. Yeah. So I don't think this is ever going to become comfortable for me. No. But so as long as it helps other people, I'm I'm down, down with it. Just got to lean out of it. 100%. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. See, I've read. Yeah. So when you're asked to appear on, for instance, Tracked, mm -hmm. right? What were your initial thoughts uh, or concerns? Because I've had friends of mine who uh, have been involved in units overseas and asked to be do TV programs and everything else, and they're like, no, 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 it's not for me. You know, I don't want to do that fig jam stuff and yeah. everything else. And they have reluctantly done it and gone, actually, it was a bit of a blast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
but by the same token, they said I'm always wary of people sort of in the unit or where I've come from sort of saying, look at sort of Mr. Showboat there, you know, Mr. Cap <laughs> Captain Hollywood, you know, doing his stuff <laughs> and that type of stuff. Yeah, here she comes with a TV crew. Um, yeah, yeah. Were you a little bit concerned about that or was it yeah, like, like you say, you know, just sort of, oh, I'm doing this because nobody else is going to do it and if I don't do it then nobody's going to hear the story well I mean there's so many beats to this right the first yeah. one is absolutely that was front of mind for me and then the minute I realized that my primary concern was what would others think of me if I did that I was like oh whoa oh okay. yeah, yeah all right yeah. now hold hold your horses sister that's the wrong yeah, reason yeah. not to do it yeah because I mean if if people I've worked with and people I've served along with people I've known have that reaction to something I'm exploring, then mm, mm, that's yeah. not my job to fix them. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Yep. But the more important layer to this is by the time when we started Trek, I had involved so many of our ex-colleagues in helping work out whether this is worth doing, not mm -hmm. for me personally, but mm. as a concept. Mm. And it was a series of serendipities, as it always happens, that I ended up being there. <laughs> yeah. By the time when I ended up there, two of my ex-colleagues were already signed up for it. So we had to be, you know, it's the good old team thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> all for one and one for all. Yeah. I'm not kidding. This yeah. is it. This is it. And it's, you, know, you can't not do it. No. You can't be that guy, you yeah. know? But it was amazing. And I think the other thing is we've got to, we've got to totally be mindful of how we can create these really rigid identities. You know why why do we stop being and exploring and experimenting mm. so seeing that my obsession was with curiosity i would have been a total coward if i didn't lean into this and, yep. <laughs> and did it you know now, i gotta ask you this because i ask everybody that's ever been on television this and i can remember my first moment and just go <gasps> yeah what was it like the first time you saw yourself on television you heard yourself yeah i mean i know you do lots of conferences i've watched some of those conferences and you do lots of public speaking as well but being in your own own lounge watching yourself <laughs> and going oh my god i never realized i do that or <laughs> i do that was that horrifying or was that like okay cool no worries yeah. have you you've met some of my family already yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't the pleasant experience yeah i bet yeah human so. humility the whole way through <laughs> great that's all so, good yeah, totally. perfect yeah all good right now um what were your initial thoughts when you saw the contestants for track did you actually sort of go and I know we've kind of mentioned it a little bit before, but mm -hmm. did you actually have a look at the, some of them? I mean, I have to be honest, I watched the first, I watched the entire series. Yeah. As you know, I'm a big Vinnie Jones fan. Uh, but um, looking at some of those contestants, I was like, okay, I've never ever done any time in a unit, but if they last longer than the first exercise, I'm not <laughs> here. Um, were there some that you were sitting there going, yeah, this could be a very short trip? Yep. Yeah, I thought as much. And did you see we were right? Like, yeah. I mean, I think the predictions were there to begin with. Yeah. We were right, but then occasionally life happens, you know, and so there were a couple of couple of teams that I literally would have put my head up and said, okay, this is it, they're winning. Yeah. I might as well resign now. Yeah. And it didn't happen. No. Because life happens instead. Yeah, exactly. So that's why it's an exciting journey. Yeah. Um, now, you have your own escape story, which I've got to be honest, um, I'm, I haven't even got this written down, but I'm going to ask you, Everybody asks you about your own escape story, but nobody says, is it okay if we talk about this? They just like, boom, because I'm guessing that's a fairly traumatic incident in your life, being kidnapped at gunpoint from the Golan Heights. <laughs> uh, and all the interviews I've ever heard, everybody's like, and we'll just talk about your kidnapping now. And as a police officer, I'm like, perhaps we might want to actually ask her, would you mind talking about this? Um, and clearly you don't have any issues with it, but it did make me laugh, the number of people that were very much sort of, and we'll get straight to the chase. I'm yeah. not 
I'm going to do you a favour. I'm Thank not going to talk that much about it, all right? Thank you. Purely because of what it is. So, um, it features heavily in the Resilience Toolkit book, and as it should, right? Um, you and two others are kidnapped, and in your way, in your exact words, and I quote, you talked your way out of being held captive, right? Mm. Um, after an incident in the Golan Heights. When your captors told you that they were going to make a bad video of you and your fellow captives, without giving too much of the story away, because... I want you to buy the Resiliency Toolkit because I think every New Zealander should actually mm. have a copy of it on their bookshelf. Do us as a country, it'd probably do us good. Um, what was your greatest learning from that incident? And when you reflect on it, do you, as my father would say, do you realise how close you came to a spot of bother there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Do you know what's really weird? We had um, one of my one of my mates that we were with in this particular incident keeps giving me grief about it because apparently when we were walking out and up to our observation post after we were released I said out loud that's enough now that's enough yeah. no one was there I, yeah. I had this little moment <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've realized that yeah. I've, I've been in a spot of bother and I don't need to be pushing my, my yeah. luck yeah. much yeah. anymore no. you know? yeah uh, yeah and you know when you mention it in the book and everything else and of course there's all the newspaper stories and I get mm -hmm. why they're trying to push that angle and everything else I'm like Let's talk about the book, not just yeah. sort of, yeah, because, yeah, it must be horrifying. Anyway. But, but you do know that, you know in your own context, that there are far more intense, far more yeah. severe, far more traumatic exposures that colleagues of ours have had and continue to have on a daily. Correct, yeah. In far more confronting environments, which is, I'm sure it's far more confronting to be dealing with a similar level of threat out couple of suburbs away from your place of living yeah. than it is in the middle of nowhere out yeah. on a Golan Heights when your mindset is already on there. So without without taking anything away from that incident, I think the reason why I appreciate this book and the fact that we should have to learn from each other's stories is that there are far more complex stories that people deal with daily mm. than that one incident that is in a book, you know? Yeah, but I know but I also think it's that thing of yeah, there is a United Nations mm. military officer. So I'm not going to say you're not seen as the good guys because for some yeah. people you're not. Yeah. Um, but you are there technically on a mission of peace. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say that you're female because I'm not that way inclined. But for some people that is a big thing. Yeah, huge. Um, you know, and it's like, and here we are, you and your two colleagues being marched and told, you know, this may not end well for you. So yeah, yeah I, I get it. Um, how do you look after your own resiliency on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So if I said to you, I'm going to give you the four topics that you have in your book. Your awareness. Uh -huh. How do you look after it? I have to I get really excited about everything I have to do all of the time. Like hyper excited about all of my tasks for a day. So I have to make conscious effort to pause. Actually stopping, grounding myself. You can see how much green there is around us. <laughs> Pausing long enough to actually work out where my head is at. Yep. I tend to have a tendency to race ahead of myself constantly and try to gain too much learning from what's just happened. So actually pausing, grounding myself in the here and now, mm -hmm. essential. But uh, gradually I try to do yoga. Yeah. I am forever learner of meditation. It kills me, but I keep on trying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you I and I both, the, yeah. Yeah, but I think the most important thing is actually quality time with my son. That is the thing that I must do every day to ensure that life is right. Yeah, you so, the, so you've answered the question about belonging. right Yeah, 100%. There. What about your curiosity? Because as we both know, you can be curious about something. So maybe you've been curious about me turning up in the police car yep. and us doing the <laughs> podcast and everything else. Yeah. In an hour's time, that's going to be something different. So how do you keep your curiosity maintained, so to speak? Is it through study? Is it 
writing another book as yeah. a yeah do you know like i mean truth be told this last episode has been intensely busy for me not just because of the book but also everything else with work mm -hmm. so the best way in which i maintain my curiosity is actually working out why i get why i feel the way i feel about all the different challenges i have to overcome i think pretty pretty important challenges ahead in terms of how I contribute more widely mm -hmm. with all that I do mm -hmm. uh, and that's been something I've been holding back on leaning into mm -hmm. for a little too long so now my curiosity has to be about what's the obstacle for me that I'm imagining yep. and how do I bulldoze it through this because there's a lot of epic work that needs to be done out there mm -hmm. we need to we need to start making it happen not wrong and Smart, you, you've just done your drive as well, all at the same yeah. time, so good work. Yeah. Awesome. It's almost like awesome. you read the questions. Resiliency is the ability to wonder more than worry and mm -hmm. reflect more than ruminate. I heard you say that during an interview. How do you keep that going as a constant cycle on a daily basis rather than something that you read in a book? Mm -hmm. And you very often will hear people say motivation only lasts for a certain bit Yeah. and then you're done. I mean, you can go on a 5k hike and go, I've just heard this great motivational phase and like you've said previously, you know, 100 meters down the road, your ankle gets twisted and you're like, oh, yeah, that, what am I doing? Yeah, that quote's not going to get yeah, me through. <laughs> yeah. So how do you maintain it on a, on a daily basis rather than going back to that book you've read or the documentary you've just read? Do we need constant reminders? Like, like I've said to you, I've read the residency toolkit twice. Mm. I suspect by the end of the year it will probably be up to about five times because <laughs> I'll go, I haven't done that or I'm not thinking about this or yep. that type of stuff. So do we need constant reminders for those four aspects of our lives all the time to be resilient? Or have you met individuals who just do that innately and just go, that's what I do? I think even the ones that have practiced it to the point where it becomes an innate process, remind themselves about those moments when they go, you know, get, mm -hmm. kind of get mm -hmm. off alert a little mm -hmm. bit. So the point here is, I think you have to remind yourself that the brain prefers the misery sometimes a little mm -hmm. too often mm -hmm. that some of these negative thought patterns be that worry or rumination are there to protect us and the discipline of discovering this and sticking with that realization that this pattern of thought is destructive and have a better way of serving being thriving that's a habit to be to be learned but i think you kind of have to play with it right at different times in life different things are needed mm -hmm. more than others mm. so you've got to sprinkle the right kind of gold dust yep. into the mix yeah you've got one vehicle yourself to nurture moving forward that's mm -hmm. the most important thing in order for you to serve others better so yeah it's about adapting and working out what matters most right now yeah because yeah. as you you'll know this um very often in life you have something happen but you actually can't see the lesson for another mm -hmm. six months for instance point an example um you go and see your professor uh -huh. and say hey <laughs> i'm interested in curiosity and like i said yeah. it baffled the crap out of me when i read your book to start off with my curiosity i thought this was about resilience and yeah. you know and all, in my brain all i can think of is curiosity killed the cat so mm -hmm. what would this be resiliency because you yeah but your professor says to you you know yeah this is and you pivot on that curiosity thing did you at the time see the irony in going back to a unit whose motto is who dares wins <laughs> uh, about asking them why they're curious because i'm sitting there and uh, i have to be honest it did take me a wee while to go oh, i've got it yeah but see? Yeah. yeah um did you did you think okay the, the irony is not lost on me there i'm going back to see these guys and this unit um and these people that support them and ask them 
why who dares wins. Mm-hmm. So 100%. Yeah. Isn't it isn't it interesting though? Like you're sitting on it the whole way through until someone goes, "Hey, look what you're sitting on," you know? Yeah. But absolutely. Yeah. And even for the guys, as the, as the start of the conversation when you ask the question of curiosity, it's a different reframe. Like I remember someone saying, "Is it what like people long stockings?" You know, yes, like, yeah, I remember reading that in your like, book and I was like, like Ooh, you don't yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you don't, you don't match up as cartoon characters, yeah, do they? Exactly. You know? And when you were talking to them about their curiosity, did you have to rephrase it for some people? But because I'm guessing there were some people like me going, uh, hang on, you come in and talk to me and you're talking about curiosity. It's uh-huh. it's not something not a feeling, not a an emotion. It's not really an emotion, but it's not something that we normally talk about, is it? Mm. Curiosity. We'll sort of go uh, I just, yeah, but we never actually talk about curiosity. But like you say, it's one of the driving factors in resiliency. And when you look at the examples in the book, and now that I've started looking at it in a broader spectrum, I'm like, they're curious, and so are they, and so are they. And it's quite sort of, yeah. um, you know, I was sitting there going, what makes some people, sports people, so great is they look at something for a running track, for instance, and they go, I'm curious to know if I can do the 400 meters in under 45 seconds. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to try everything to see if I can get there and they're being curious about how they get there so yeah. was that did you have to rephrase it for some of the people that you were talking to with regard to talking about curiosity did it I love, I love what you just said totally so there's two things that resonated the most with me the first one is that once you see it you can't unsee it and you begin to notice in your daily life mm. countless situations that turn out better because people allow themselves the opportunity to be curious mm-hmm. and i think the core premise there is that you can't be freaked out no. and curious at the same time right yeah. so if you can contain your stress long enough to be able to see past that obstacle and go oh, i can find a workabout yeah suddenly things become a little bit more plausible right but the at the beginning when i started my research with with the unit i had to pull back on mentioning the word completely because I was like, oh, i don't yeah. want i didn't see it myself as particularly complimentary do you know yeah, what i mean no, yeah. but then you hear them describing why they why they do what they do why they joined the unit to begin with mm-hmm. and it's so i can see what i'm made of mm. so that i can see what's behind that that gate mm. so that i can see how far i can push myself so that i can better discover how i can contribute i mean all of these are curiosity questions mm. so it doesn't matter if you like the label or not it is what it is yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah you know, like you say, it's a, I, and I can see why you had to pull back on the term. Because when you read it, you sort of go, really? But then yeah. I guess it's that sort of, uh, to use a Frank, Frankelden, um, yeah. it's that sort of search for your meaning, isn't yeah, it? That totally. curate, there you go. We just come full circle. Last yeah. question. Uh, it's the question we oh, I always ask all of our guests. It's the eulogy question. So the day of reckoning has come for you. Um, I've no doubt there's going to be patches and medals and everything else there as there always <laughs> is i won't ask you if you're gonna have a service funeral or not um but um you can hear what other people are saying about you at your funeral as you're lying in your casket what would you like them to say about you That's i knew a- you would expect me to say she was a curious cat <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, well, yeah yeah i told her she shouldn't have done that yeah 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 she was too curious yeah yeah so, yeah curious cat i don't know i mean i maybe maybe that's good enough yeah you know so and on that note um thank you very much for your time thank you for being the first listen to the rest of this uh cappuccino guest for being the very first cappuccino guest who's actually ever offered me coffee there's a benchmark being set there i'm just saying yeah um please make sure that you go out and buy the resiliency toolkit um you may not see it on main displays and bookstores go and ask for it um dr alia Bojalova has a fairly unique name, um, so when you go up there, make sure that you've got it spelled out right, because it will be very easy for you to find. I have been to about 
15 or 20 bookstores and I've seen it there. I've even fronted it for you on a couple of occasions as well. Um, but yeah, make sure that you go and get a copy of it. I think that you will learn some lessons that you are not going to learn anywhere else. And the very first one is one of those big topics we've spoken about, curiosity. Um, like I said, I've read many, many books and not a single one of them has ever mentioned curiosity in the same way that you mention it. But be warned, you are going to be going back three or four times because if you're anything like me, you're going to get curious about curiosity and all the other factors. So thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much for the privilege. Thanks for listening. But please do Constable Brian and I a favour and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next Coppuccino podcast. Real people, real stories.